Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Morning, everyone. Um, The passage I'm going to preach on today comes from Luke, as many of you know, even the Harvest guys, I think, at this point in time. Uh, We're here at ICC going through the Gospel of Luke. We're in year three and just about halfway done, and so it's uh, been a pretty long series. Um, And the title of the message is The Great Divide, and this is going to be the first part of a two-part message on Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. God, as we tackle this uh, difficult doctrine of hell, we pray that you would grant to us a heart of understanding, a heart of submission, a heart that uh, is willing to hear the truth, no matter how difficult it may be, that ultimately out of that obedience, Christ would reign supreme in our lives. For it is in his name we pray. Luke 16, verses 19 to 31, is one of the most extensive teachings we find in the entire Bible on the topic of hell. And uh, there is a a fair amount here that I want to unpack. And so, as I mentioned in the introduction, I'm going to divide this text into two messages. Um, And in today's message, I want to explore what I would argue is probably one of the most fundamental objections to this doctrine of hell, frankly, why it even exists in the first place, and why, as we claim a loving God, would 
send people to a place of torment like that that is so horrible. And in doing so, what I'm hoping to do is to expose some of the misconceptions that many of us, not just people outside the church, but even many of us Christians within the church have about both heaven and hell. And I also, in this message today, want to try to look a little more closely at the heart of a person that is headed to hell as well as to heaven and to see if we can make sense of all of this. Uh, And then next week, we're going to focus on sort of the second half of this story and talk about what are the implications of this doctrine of hell for our witness in the world and the way that we ought to live our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. Okay? Um, And I want to start this message by saying that hell is a difficult doctrine. It is. Um, And I'm not just saying that for non-Christians or people outside the church that are bothered by the fact that this is what Christians believe. But I want to argue that even as a sincere Christian, you yourself may really struggle with this doctrine. Statistically, more Americans believe in heaven than they believe in hell. And not surprisingly, just about everybody in America that believes that there is a hell doesn't think they're going to be there when they die. Or another way we could say it is just about every American who believes that there is heaven waiting for them in the afterlife thinks they're going to be there. Um, And so we got to wrestle with this issue, and we've got to unpack what Scripture has to say to us about this difficult doctrine. I think one of the ways that we can sort of summarize the key objection to hell is we could say, one is, hell makes salvation seem too exclusive. It just makes it seem too exclusive. The doctrine of hell paints the picture of a cruel and hateful God who condemns everyone else except these Christians that, I guess, if you're not one of them, then you go to hell. And so the objection is raised. What about all the hundreds of millions of people who worship other religions or who don't follow a religion at all? Are they really all condemned? Another objection to the doctrine of hell is the punishment seems too severe. I mean, for some people, maybe there could be some sense in which uh, a, a judgment day makes sense because there is so much garbage in this world. There is so much injustice. There's so much evil that maybe in all of us there is a sense that there should be a day of reckoning. There should be some day when God makes things right. But hell seems a little too much. A picture of horrible suffering for eternity. From many people's perspectives, the argument would be that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. It's just over the top. It's too much. A third objection is, isn't there enough suffering in this life? Don't we go through enough suffering living on earth in this lifetime? Think of all the horrible things that we have to endure in this broken, fallen world. How could a loving God, after all of the stuff we go through in this life, 
send some people to hell. Isn't this world hell enough for anyone? Robert Ingersoll captures the sentiment like this. If there is a God who will damn his children forever, I would rather go to hell than to go to heaven and keep the society of such an infamous tyrant. And the truth is maybe some of you are sympathetic to Ingersoll's words. And I'll be honest here. In my own journey of faith, some of these sentiments have been ones that even I have personally struggled with and wrestled with. But here's the thing. In contrast to all of these objections and debates and controversies and confusion about the doctrine of hell, both inside and outside the church, the Bible itself is not very ambiguous. In other words, what I'm saying is, when you read both the Old and New Testaments, hell is not an obscure doctrine found in just a handful of confusing, hard-to-understand texts. It's not. Almost every single New Testament book in the book talks about hell. In fact, Jesus talked about hell more than any other person in the Bible. He talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. Look at what the Apostle Paul said to the Thessalonian church in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 to 10. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. These are not easy words to hear. But I would argue that at the same time, there is not much ambiguity in these words either, is there? Our story in Luke 16 revolves around two characters. One is a poor man named Lazarus, and the other is a rich man who will remain anonymous. And there's this interesting pattern in the Old and New Testaments of naming certain people and leaving others unnamed in the same story. We find this pattern in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Ruth is a Moabite, is a Gentile, a foreigner who married a Jewish man but becomes widowed young in life and ends up trying to care for her, her Jewish mother-in-law. And so she returns back to Bethlehem, where her husband was from, and as a widow is trying to figure out a way to survive because she needs a man in order to make it in those days. And so the relative who is closest to her, who has actually the first obligation to marry her, 
looks at the situation, and he realizes he has nothing to gain and everything to lose by marrying her. Because if he marries her and he gives her children, her children could maybe try to make a claim on his inheritance, which is supposed to go to his biological children. So the guy refuses. He says, I'm not marrying you, Ruth. And what's interesting is this guy goes unnamed throughout the story. And it's painfully obvious that he goes unnamed. In fact, if you actually look in the Hebrew, he's called a name, but he's not called by his proper name. He's literally called Mr. So-and-so. That's what the Bible calls him. So Mr. So-and-so did this, and Mr. So-and-so did that. In other words, it's like a snub against this man saying, listen, your name is not worthy of being remembered in history. You're going to be forgotten by everybody. You're nameless. In contrast, her next kinsman, Boaz, who selflessly marries Ruth and cares for her, is remembered in the history of God. And the message is very clear. This man who chose the selfish way, who chose to live according to his own agenda, will be forgotten in God's history, is forgotten by God. But Boaz, who rose to the occasion and honored God, will be remembered by him forever. And I think something similar is going on in our story this morning in Luke chapter 16. The poor man, Lazarus, is remembered by God, while this rich man is just one more anonymous person that will be forgotten in history. Now, read superficially, this story can be reduced to just a morality tale on social justice. Basically, you can read it as the poor will get their reward in the next life because they so suffered so much in this one, while the rich will get their due for all the injustice that they displayed during their years on earth. So if you read it casually like that, that's sort of the conclusion you can draw. There's going to be payback one day where the wealthy are going to get their due and the poor will be loved by God. But I want to look more closely at the details of the story to argue that that's actually not the teaching of this story that Jesus tells. It's not a tale about social justice. The issue being emphasized in this story about this anonymous rich man is not his riches, as substantial as they were. Although there are a lot of warnings to the rich found throughout the Bible, the Bible does make it clear that being wealthy in and of itself is not a sin. But it's the heart with which we live our life on this earth that Jesus is highlighting in this story. All this man cared about was himself. In his years on earth, he lived an extravagant, opulent lifestyle in which he denied himself nothing. He dressed in the most expensive clothing that money could buy. Every meal he ate like a king, a feast that he demanded to be set before him. And all the while, while he's living this extravagant lifestyle, there is this poor man laying at his gate, his front door, 
who is in essence starving to death. And we're told that Lazarus can only dream of eating the crumbs that may fall from this man's table. By virtue of the fact that he dreamt of that, suggests something. It suggests that this rich man walked by Lazarus every day when he went out of his house. But in all of those times encountering this starving man, never lifted a finger to feed this guy, but callously watched this man die. In other words, this rich man showed utter contempt and disregard for the things that mattered to God. You see, this man finds himself in hell not because he was wealthy, but because he basically lived a life completely on his own terms, as if he were his own God. And it's clear that the same arrogant attitude follows him into the afterlife. Because if you look in verse 24, it says, And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in the flame. Just about every commentator notes the tone with which this guy speaks to Lazarus. You see, even in hell, he is trying to dictate the terms by which he is to be served. And so he talks to Lazarus. He talks about Lazarus as if he's his servant. Abraham, Father Abraham, go send Lazarus to me. Go tell him to fetch some water so that I could be relieved of my suffering. The same arrogant attitude that he had in life is no different in death. He's still the same person in the afterlife. When we talk about God's unfairness in sending some people to heaven and others to hell, We falsely assume, I think, that if everyone could choose, they would choose to be in heaven. And I think that's a false assumption. And I think that false assumption is often a result of our distorted picture of what heaven and hell are actually like, what the Bible has to say about it, not just our imagination. In 1998, a movie came out that maybe some of you have seen called What Dreams May Come starring Robin Williams. And Williams plays a man who dies in a car accident. And he goes to heaven. And there in heaven, he discovers these lush landscapes, gorgeous, just breathtakingly beautiful. And what he figures out is that he's actually playing in the landscapes that his wife, who is still on earth, painted her oil paintings. And so he's frolicking in these landscapes and just enjoying heaven. And then he stopped dead in his tracks when he sees this bird suspended in midair. So he goes to his spiritual guide who is teaching him about the afterlife, played by Cuba Gooding Jr. And he says, why doesn't that bird fly? Why is it just stuck there in midair? And his spiritual guide says to him, because you have not willed it to fly. And so Williams gets a big smile on his face, and he gets it. He's figuring out what heaven is all about. And with a smile on his face, he wills the bird into flight, and it flies away into the cloud. 
And in that singular scene in that movie, I think it basically captures the myth of heaven that I would argue many both in the church and out of the church subscribe to, which in essence is this. Heaven is going to be a paradise where basically I get to have everything that I've ever wanted. It's like cosmic Disney world for adults all the time. So I'm going to be driving on those gold streets of gold found in Revelation in my gold-plated Lamborghini. And I am just going to will it, and an ice cream cone will be in my hand. And I'm going to eat that cone down to the end. And then another, and then another, and then another. And because it's heaven, I will not gain one pound. That is heaven, isn't it? And I will still be cut like a Greek god or a goddess. That is heaven. That is heaven. But I want to ask you this. Is that the picture of heaven that the Bible describes? A world in which your will reigns supreme? I would actually offer to you that that is a more accurate, closer picture of the way the Bible describes hell. Because heaven, as the Bible describes it, is the place not where our will reigns supreme, but where God's reign rules uncontested. When every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. And here is the honest question that you and I have to wrestle with in light of that teaching of heaven. Does that sound like paradise to you? Does that sound like the kind of place that you want to spend eternity in? Because at the root of all sin is a desire in each one of us to rule ourselves, to let my will be done, to let me call the shots, to let me be a God unto myself and not bow to another. And that's what hell is. The question is this, the people who will not be in heaven, do they even want heaven? Is that even a picture of paradise to the proud, the unbroken, the hard-hearted? In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis describes it like this, and this quote, I apologize, is a bit dense, and I was debating about whether I should just paraphrase it or what, but it's just try to track with what he's saying Because it's such a powerful thing he says about hell. I willingly believe that the damned are in one sense successful, rebels to the end. That the doors of hell are locked on the inside. I do not mean that the ghosts may not wish to come out of hell in the vague fashion wherein an envious man wishes to be happy. But they certainly do not will even the first preliminary stages of that self-abandonment through which alone the soul can reach any good. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. Just as the blessed forever submitting to obedience become through all eternity more and more free. 
in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help because he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I am afraid. That is what he does. You see, what C.S. Lewis is saying is, hell can in essence be defined as that place where God abandons you to your sin. Say, if this is what you want, this is what you get. Go for it. Have it your way. Have it on your terms, as you've demanded. In his book, The Great Divorce, he continues in his talk about hell, and he says, there are two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. Now, this is going to be a little controversial. And if it's going to really bother you, please talk to me one-on-one, okay? But over the years of my reflection on this doctrine of hell, I think where I stand today in my own belief about hell is that I think these descriptions like a lake of fire and burning sulfur and things like that, I understand them to be more symbolic and metaphorical than literal. But that doesn't mean I think the anguish of hell is any less intense than if it were a literal lake of fire. Uh, R.C. Sproul says it like this. These graphic images of eternal punishment provoke the question, should we take these descriptions literally or are they merely symbols? I suspect they are symbols, but I find no relief in that. We must not think of them as being mere symbols. It is probable that the sinner in hell would prefer a literal lake of fire as his eternal abode to the reality of hell represented in the lake of fire image. And what the point of uh, what Sproul is saying and what I believe as well is to say, I think what the lake of fire imagery represents is a condition of total separation from God. Being abandoned to the imprisonment of your own will without God's favor or protection or fellowship. In this sense, you could argue that hell is getting exactly what you've always wanted, to be the king of your own kingdom, apart from God's authority over them. C.S. Lewis paints this very intriguing picture of hell in his book, The Great Divorce, as an ever-expanding dark city in which neighbor against neighbor keeps moving further and further away from each other because they just can't stand one another. And so the second you get in a fight, the second you get sick of another person, you just relocate a little to the margins, a little to the margins, and in the end, hell becomes one expansive suburb of people that cannot be with one another. My will be done. Let it be done the way I want it. The problem with getting what we want or what we think we want is that we don't understand the horror of what we want. You see, 
The freedom of hell is like the freedom of the heroin addict who is granted the ability to do as much heroin as he or she wants. It's a false freedom, isn't it? It's the picture of God abandoning you to the consequences of your sinful desires without any hope for rescue from your own choices. C.S. Lewis illustrates this through the example of a sin like a complaining spirit. It begins with a grumbling mood and yourself still distinct from it, perhaps criticizing it, meaning on earth it's still a struggle. You're fighting these tendencies. And yourself in a dark hour may will that mood, embrace it. You can repent and come out of it again. But there may come a day when you can do that no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, nor even to enjoy it but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. That's a terrifying picture that Lewis paints of taking your sin and magnifying it over the course of eternity and envisioning what a life like that would be like unhelped by God. In other words, our sin struggle in this life is just like a small ember growing in our heart, a flickering flame. In hell, that sin becomes a raging fire that consumes us unabated, without relief. You know, the Bible says that before Jesus rescues us, we are enemies of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 says, and you, were, and you who were once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That's the way he introduces us. He says, you were once enemies of God. You once had a bent against God, hating him. And for, I think, a lot of us, we kind of uh, refuse that kind of characterization of us. I, I want to describe it like that. I never hated God. It's not like I ever shook my fist at heaven and said, damn you. Why are you doing this? But I think what the Bible is saying is is this. There is inside every one of us a desire to reject God and be our own God, to be able to live life on our terms, to be set free of any limitations of mortality, and to be able to align our world according to our desire our wishes. And the truth is, there's plenty of empirical evidence to demonstrate the Spirit in each of our lives. I think it's captured so well in that famous poem by William Ernest Henley called Invictus. It says, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You see, 
Whether you're a serial killer or a soccer mom, that spirit of rebellion and pride resides in every single one of us. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Verse 26, we're told that there is a great divide so vast that there's no way to cross it once the judgment day has come. But the great message of Scripture is this, that Christ in this moment of redemptive history has bridged that gulf that none of us could bridge on our own. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 to 2, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Paul goes on in verses 10 through 11, For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, the great work of redemption that Christ did for us is to break that spirit of pride and to conquer the unconquerable soul inside every one of us. It's not just about getting a ticket to paradise when we die. It's about preparing our hearts so that we are fit and welcoming of heaven. It is to prepare us as people that say, not my will, but thine be done. You see, brothers and sisters, you have to take a very honest and hard look at your life right now because there are only two roads here, one that goes to heaven and one that goes to hell. And the road that goes to heaven is the road of the broken heart conquered by God that says it's ultimately not about me and what I want, but about bowing before Christ for whom I have been created. You see, the question is, do you even want to be in heaven? Are you sure that that's where you want to be in the afterlife? Because the deeper question related to that is, what is your understanding of heaven? What do you think heaven is going to even be like that draws you to it? And I'm going to tell you this. If your picture of heaven is this myth that it's basically like Disneyland where you get to do anything you want with impunity, that is a closer picture to hell. And I want to ask you this as I wrap up this message this day. Has Christ conquered your soul? Has he? Because let me be honest here. As I do pastoral counseling, what I come across very regularly is not the heart of a person conquered but more of a person that is trying to conquer God with the frustration and the anger and this sense of when is God going to get in line with my plans? What's his problem? Why isn't he blessing me? Why isn't he answering my prayers? Why doesn't he do what I ask him to do? And all of it really betrays a heart that is saying, my will be done. My will be done in heaven as it is on earth. 
And the dangerous and frightening thing is God may one day say to you, so be it, your will be done. Have it your way. I don't want to interfere with that. Or we can turn to Christ and realize that he did for us what we could never do for ourselves by breaking the spirit of pride in us and causing us by faith to say, what I want more than anything is you. This is what we're preparing for here on this earth. It's a heart that hungers for heaven. A heart that hungers to bow and bend the knee before Christ and say, to you alone be the glory. Let's pray. This is a heavy message, I acknowledge that. And boy, it's hard to talk about hell in any kind of light or casual way, isn't it? But before we can really comprehend the good news, we have to come to grips with the horror of the bad news. The bad news is that inside each one of us is a raging monster that fights against God. It's Adam and Eve in the garden played out in every generation. That God is holding out on us. That he's not for me, he's against me. And that if I eat that forbidden fruit, I will be like God. I will be able to dictate the terms of my own destiny. But that's a lie of Satan. It's a lie of the devil. Christ offers to you the power of his redemption to conquer your soul. To take your stubborn knees and bend them. And recognize that you are your own worst enemy. If you are the captain of your soul, that ship is headed to destruction. But if Christ takes command of your life, he can give you the peace and the love and the joy that you've always longed for. Everything that you try to engineer by your own design and fail, Christ can rescue the shipwreck of your life and give you a new hope, a new joy, a new power that you never knew before so that you come to view the afterlife not just a ticket to paradise, but a moment in which you get to stand before the God that created you and understand for the first time the fullness of why you were even created in this world. To join everyone else who will one day stand before that throne and say, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. Our worship team is going to lead us into the song, Praise to Our God. One of the lines in the verses says, from dawn till dusk, we'll be lifting up our King. Hear our song. Praise to our God. Praise to our God. I want to ask you honestly this question. Does that sound fun to you? Does that sound exciting to you? To spend 24-7 praising God from dawn to dusk? Or for maybe some of you, if you just have an honest moment, you say, that does not sound attractive to me at all. If that's heaven, I really have to question whether that's what I want. 
As I was preparing this message and thinking about heaven and hell and picturing what heaven is going to be like, I was just so moved inside by thinking about these lyrics, picturing the story of Revelation, standing before the throne room of God. What I realized that I longed for so much was just to be able to, for one time in my life, worship God without mixed motives. To to be able to see him face to face, fall on my knees, and be able to say, salvation belongs to you. It's all about you. It's all for you. Because you have rescued the shipwreck of my life. You are the captain of my soul. You are the lover of my life. My sincere prayer for every single person in this room today is that that would be the hope of heaven that lies in your heart. That the prayer that you would offer this day is, Jesus Christ, conquer this stubborn soul. Conquer this heart that I would be fully yours and live in the fullness of your purpose for me and why you created me. Would you just pray that prayer for a few minutes? And our worship team is going to come and lead us in these closing songs of worship. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.